Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Today I was working on uh, the first sermon from the second chapter. The title of that sermon you may see in your, in your prayer page tonight is, is um, I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. And uh, as I was working on that message today, I just uh, wondered what direction am I going to take this message. There is so much to talk about. In the book of Ephesians, it's such a rich book in doctrine. Sometimes uh, you just worry about what you have to leave out and not able to cover everything. But we thank the Lord for such a, such a rich study in His Word. And I hope you enjoy uh, hearing about this as much as I enjoy preparing and preaching these messages. But I'd like you to open now to chapter 1. And this evening we come to the close of this chapter. We're going to study the last verses of this chapter. Uh, in the first 14 verses, Paul gives us an introduction to this book. And he kind of lays the groundwork for all of the things that he's going to talk about. And one of the things that he does is to introduce the Trinity in the work of salvation. He talked about how God the Father called us in eternity past. How God chose us out before the foundation of the world. Then he spoke about how the Lord Jesus Christ was sent in time. And Christ is our Redeemer. Then last week we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit in redemption, or a couple of weeks ago perhaps it was, and we talked about how the Holy Spirit seals us, and how the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee that we will be finally glorified. So Paul uh, speaks on those things, and now he comes down to the last part of this chapter, and he reflects on the Ephesian Christians... And he offers a prayer for them. What we have here in this last part of the chapter is an intercessory prayer by Paul. And he offers this for these people in Ephesus that they might understand the doctrines that he's presented to them. He, he wants them to have spiritual enlightenment in these things. And Paul said that he would pray for them. And he talked about how often that he prayed for them. You may remember Paul's the one who said, pray without ceasing. And he's a man who followed his own advice because we'll read in uh, verse number 16 of this chapter that Paul said he prayed for them without ceasing or, or never ceased to give thanks for them and the way that God had worked in their lives. So I want to talk about intercessory prayer tonight. And, and God does work through intercessory prayer. Prayer is a, a gift of God. And... Uh, Prayer is one of the ways that we can have an intimate relationship with the Lord. And I really do believe that the very best prayers that we pray are prayers that are prayed in knowledge. And what I mean by that is as we come to know the Lord in a greater way, as we learn more about Jesus and what he's done for us, then our prayers become more natural to us. And we realize the great blessings that we have of salvation. And that's why we, we get down and we study the kind of doctrines that we've been uh, preaching over the past few weeks because we just want to know more about God. We want to know more about how this whole salvation works and, and what God has done for, that, for us. And that's what Paul reveals to us in this first chapter. Now, tonight's message will be the first of three parts on this subject. And uh, this is a complete unit here, these last verses. They are the intercessory prayer. And, and, and uh, this is actually the first of two prayers that we find in the book of Ephesians. But I want to spend tonight talking about specifically what Paul asked for in this prayer. And that's what I want to talk about over the next three weeks. So what did Paul ask for? Well, I think the key verse is in verse number 18 where Paul says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know. 
And this is what Paul prays for, that, that they would realize where they stand in Christ. They would know that God is real to them and they would know him in a much greater way. And anybody who has trouble with these first few verses of Ephesians and understanding the things that we've talked about needs this kind of prayer for them. They need to be, and you may, need to be enlightened to these doctrines of God's Word so that you can understand who God is. So let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Let's look at verse number 15 tonight, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power? If you have a pencil, you might want to underline that phrase, according to the working of his mighty power, because that is an important phrase in this first chapter. Verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, And every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, book of Ephesians. We're thankful, Lord, for these just great truths that we've been able to talk about here. Lord, we do want to know you better. We want some understanding of these doctrines, and Lord, we just pray that you might make these real to us. And we just uh, ask you, Lord, to bless as we preach the message tonight. Speak to hearts through uh, the words that I speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are a lot of different aspects of this prayer that we need to discuss But I don't really think that we can go into the the specifics of Paul's prayer unless we first talked about the manner in which he prayed. And this prayer is one that's quite a bit different than prayers that we would pray. Because we'll notice as Paul opens the prayer and, and goes through this prayer that there is not one mention in all of this prayer about material things. This is a spiritual prayer. It's a prayer thanking the Lord for what these Christians already possess. Now, many times when we pray, our our prayers become a shopping list. And we simply begin to tell God about all the physical needs that we have and how we need God to take care of all these things. And the attitude that we have many times when we go to God in prayer is just give me this and give me that. I need this and I need that. And rarely do we ever just stop and thank God for the things that we already have. I mean, just thank the Lord for what he's already already done for us. And so we rarely focus on just spiritual matters. Our, our minds are always on the physical. I certainly do believe that God wants us to pray for the physical. We do need all of those things. But if our prayers contain just physical things and material things, then our spiritual man is going to fall short. We need to ask God for spiritual matters as well. And just as Paul prayed here for spiritual enlightenment for these people, that's the same thing that that we need. Now, Paul's prayer in this particular case doesn't even mention him at all. I mean, his prayer is not for anything personal, no personal desires. 
But he's speaking about these Christians at Ephesus and asking God to help them and thanking God for them. Now, the first thing that I would like to address tonight in this message is the praise of prayer. And I want you to notice the, the praise of Paul's prayer. And sometimes we, we really need to look at and think about the motivation of our prayers. What are we motivated by? Now, here we see a case where Paul is motivated by thanksgiving. And I wonder how many times that we are actually motivated by thanksgiving. And when we think about our prayers and how we often pray for ourselves, when do we just stop and thank God, not only for what he's done for us, but also what God has done in the lives of other people? I mean, are we the kind of people who can really thank God that something good has happened to somebody else? And I wonder how many times that we really get down on our knees and we just thank God for the blessings that he's put on another believer or the way that God has helped them in their spiritual lives to grow. And I think much of the time we really don't pray for those kinds of things. I think it's a good thing for us and we ought to think about thanking God for things like a good Sunday school teacher. I mean, thank the Lord for, for a good deacon that we have in our church. And of course, I, I would hope that you would, you would pray and thank the Lord for the blessings of your pastor, because the pastor needs that. But I think most of us are, are far more concerned with the shortcomings that people have than we really are concerned with the good things that God has done for them. And I, I just wonder what it would be like if we just stopped sometime, if we just stopped and we took an account of the way that we pray and the way that we talk from day to day and see that our, how our speech balances out over time in the things that we say about other people. I mean, most of the time we hear complaints. And you need to think about how much do you complain about what goes on as opposed to how much you thank God for things that go on. And we need to think about how much that we complain about the deacons or complain about the, the, the Sunday school teachers or complain about what the pastor's done. Why don't we just stop for a little bit of time and, and figure out how much time have we spent complaining and how much time have we spent thanking the Lord for the people that he brings us. Now, we all know this, bad news travels, fa travels fast. Bad news travels further, and as they say, good news rarely gets any traction. And that's true. I mean, on a daily basis, I do hear more complaints than I ever do praise. But something that I really rejoice in the Lord is when somebody stops by my office and they say to me, you know, I was really blessed by a message that you preach. Or I was really blessed... In, in the services today, or I just want to thank the Lord for my church. I just want to thank the Lord, and I feel good about my church. Oh, I, I love to have people stop in and talk about things like that. But we notice here that, and, and often through the scriptures, that Paul is motivated by good things. His prayers concerning good things, and that's the way that he starts this prayer. And what he is motivated by here are the good things that he's heard about the people at Ephesus. Now let's notice these 15th and 16th verses again. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now I want to, to show you tonight two items of praise from these verses and two tests that are essential for a right relationship with the Lord. What does Paul praise God for? Well, first thing he praises, uh, praises uh, the Lord for is the praise for their faith. Paul speaks about their faith. 
And I believe as he does this, he's speaking about two particular aspects of their faith. First of all, he's speaking about their initial salvation. And so he's praising God for their initial salvation. And of course, it's Paul who is the one who was instrumental in bringing these people to the Lord. If you remember in our study of the book of Acts, Paul spent more time at Ephesus than he spent in any other city. He spent two years in this city. And and the Bible tells us that Paul had great success there bringing converts to the Lord. In other places of the scripture, uh, Paul shows us that he had a very heavy heart for the people that he ministered to. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, For though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. And so there's always a a close connection between the convert and the person who's won him to Christ. There's always a great affinity between those two. And Paul thanked the Lord that he was able to bring these people to the Lord. And one thing that we notice about Paul as we look at the converts that he talks about, Paul never brags about who he brought to the Lord. Now, apparently he's unlike many people that we find today because Paul never gave us a list of everybody he won. Paul never even gave us the number of how many people that he won to the Lord. You see, he wasn't concerned about receiving glory for what he had done. He was concerned that God gets the glory for all that's done. And he just thanked the Lord that God had used him to bring people to Christ. Well, personal salvation, personal individual faith, this this is an important thing because this is the identifying mark of true Christianity. And the reason that I make that statement is because many people are actually confused about that. What is the identifying mark of a Christian? And some people will say, well, the first identifying mark of a Christian is his conduct. How do people act? What is their conduct like? And that must be the first identifier. And after all, Jesus said, by their fruits, ye shall know them. But, but a person's conduct cannot be the first qualifier. His faith must be first. Faith must be the first thing. And why do I say faith? Because there are many people who have good conduct. I mean, there are lots of people in the world that we find are very moral people. We find people who are very benevolent and good people as far as the eye can tell. But those people aren't yet Christians. And maybe they never will become Christians. And there are some people who imply that people are Christians because of their conduct. That by the way they act, then surely that person must be a Christian, even though that person may have never trusted Christ. I mean, you may have been to a funeral, and this happens in a lot of funerals. I've been to a lot of these where I know that the person who was in that casket, did not express faith in Christ or never said that they were a believer. But somebody will get up and they'll begin to list all this person's good qualities. They'll talk about all the good things that they did in their life. And they'll come down to the end and say, Surely, surely, if anybody's in heaven, this person must be in heaven. And what have they judged by? Not by their faith. They've judged by their conduct. Even though that person never claimed to know Christ, yet they put their conduct before their faith. And really, folks, that is what much of the world believes. They think that it is conduct and not faith that actually saves a person. So what's the consequence of that? Well, one of the consequences is that many churches become very highly ecumenical. 
And they will join up with just about anybody that's going. They will join themselves to just about any group that there is because they see that that group does some good things. They may do some benevolent things. There may be some, some good things that they do for, for a society or, or do for the social aspect of people. And so they, they base their, their fellowship with these people on their conduct and not on their faith in Christ. But I would ask a question, I mean, how is it possible for us to join ourselves to any group that doesn't preach salvation by grace through faith alone? And yet there are people who do that. Today you have the Protestant Catholic Accord, for instance. Now the Protestants uh, claim, many of them don't, but they claim to believe in justification by faith. And yet the Catholic Church believes in justification by works. And so you wonder, how is it possible for two groups like that to work together? Well, how is it? Because they look at conduct. It's conduct that matters and not faith. Folks, one of the reasons that I don't associate with ministers of other denominations and why our church does not join up and cooperate with evangelistic efforts of other denominations is because of this issue of faith. I mean, do they do good things? Well, certainly they do some good things, but their faith is deficient. And when faith is deficient, that's not the basis for fellowship. And so what people have done today, they put conduct in front of faith. Conduct becomes the basis for fellowship instead of a person's faith or a group's faith. And then I could go one step further than that. It's not really faith in God that matters at all. Now, you might be surprised I make that statement, but let me tell you why I make it. Because the Bible says the devils believe in God. Uh, the Bible says, tells us that Satan believes in God. Muslims believe in God. And so the decisive factor is not the fact that you believe in God. The decisive factor is do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And faith must be according to true knowledge. Because believing the wrong things about Christ would never save a person. Now Jesus says, if you want to worship the Father, if you want to worship God, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so it boils down to this. It's exactly what Paul says in verse 15. He says, your faith in the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is the test. Jesus is the core here. And what you do about Jesus and what what you believe about Jesus determines your relationship with God. So it's not conduct that determines it. It's our faith. And we always have to put faith first. So why does Paul praise God? Because of their initial salvation. But then there's a second aspect he gives us here relating to faith. Because secondly, he praised God for their obedience. Now, how does he praise God for their obedience? Well, I think that Paul is thanking the Lord in this verse for the obedience of their faith. And their obedience is recognized in the word Lord. The word Lord. Now, living a Christian life back in Ephesus was a a difficult thing to do. These people presented a good testimony in, in living in Ephesus if they, if they followed the Lord and they had faith there. I mean, that was, a, that was a difficult thing to do. You remember when we studied about Ephesus that it was a city that was just ripe with idolatry. Satanic influences were in that city. There were people that were practicing witchcraft and sorceries. It was a city of decadence and, and, and sexual promiscuity. And so to try to live a Christian life in Ephesus was a hard thing to do. Well, thank the Lord that Paul spent two years there because during that time he grounded them in the faith. And that's why I believe that Paul is able to write on on such difficult subjects 
as he does right there in that first chapter. And these people received his doctrine readily. And that's because they had been grounded in the faith. Now, I mentioned before that when Paul presents all these, these uh, doctrines, he, he does it without any argument. He doesn't expect that those people are going to argue with him over what he said. But that's quite a different scenario than we see today. Because you mention election in the church, and you talk about predestination, and you speak about particular redemption and irresistible grace, and you emphasize the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and in our salvation. You mention that in the church today, and you can guarantee yourself you're going to have a fight on your hands. People are not going to like it when you preach on those things. But Paul just simply thanked God for their faith. He thanked God that their faith was in the Lord Jesus. Now, let let me show you here why faith in the Lord Jesus is all important. Because I'm not just talking about faith in Jesus as deity. I'm also talking about faith in Jesus in relation to sovereignty. And there are many people who are so willing to admit, yes, Jesus is deity, Jesus is God, but they don't like to admit Christ in his sovereignty. They don't want to accept that. Now, I think that we, we, we can't separate these two things. We've got the deity of Christ, and we've got the sovereignty of Christ. And the word Lord is a word that implies both. It speaks both of Jesus as the Savior, and it also speaks of Jesus as the Lord. Now, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul said, that, thou, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, and listen to this, the Lord Jesus... And believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, he said, the Lord Jesus. And he didn't separate this. He said, the Lord Jesus. Now, today, there's a lot of argument over the issue of lordship salvation. And there are some who say, well, well, you you have to accept Christ, but but there's no submission to his authority. That's not necessary to be saved. And so the hyper-fundamentalist, in in their zeal to count all of the numbers, they'll say submission to Christ is something that you don't need. Submission is something that may come, come later, or maybe it won't even come at all. That's not the judge of whether you are a Christian. Well, if that's true, then the person has not believed in Jesus as the Lord. And the Bible says that Paul said that you must confess Jesus as Lord. And so consequently, you have many false professions. You have claims for for thousands of people, and yet you have no proof, you have no evidence that in their lives that they've come to receive Jesus as the Lord. Now, the object of salvation, as far as I can determine from the Bible, the object of salvation is to conform the person to Christ. That's why they get saved. And if they never become conformed to Christ, then there is no evidence of their salvation. Now, the object of salvation is chiefly to glorify God. And if a person never glorifies God, then God never, then, then God's not getting what he's due out of that person's confession or out of their faith. I mean, how, how could someone have the audacity to, to claim that great numbers of people are saved and they never see those people glorify God in their lives? You see, folks, I think this is the problem with many of the fundamental churches today. They've been so conditioned to press for converts that they've completely lost sight of the glory of God. And so what do they put in its place? Well, they put in its place empire building. Preachers have to build their empires. And they want all the glory to go to their efforts. 
And that's why preachers will preach sanctification through keeping of rules and regulations and why preachers become control freaks. You see, when the people are taught that it's not necessary to have Jesus as the Lord in your salvation, then they've got to come up with some other means in order to make them obedient to what God says or obedient to what they think that they ought to do. And so what do they do? They make up all the rules. And so they begin to force obedience. Well, let me ask you something. What is it that causes sanctification? What is it that causes people to conform to Christ? It's not how many rules you keep. It's how you have received Jesus as the Lord. Because when a person receives Christ as the Lord, he becomes a teachable person. He becomes somebody that you can show what God wants to do. And so you don't force that person to follow Christ. You don't force submission to Christ. This is something that a person who's really saved voluntarily wants to do. So you don't have to have a whole list of rules for people to keep. Now, let me tell you what's missing in hyper-fundamental churches. Well, one thing that's missing are things I'm talking about here, but let me talk to you about what's not missing, perhaps. And what's not missing is anger. What's not missing is meanness. And it shows up in their preaching, and it shows up in their attitudes. And the reason why? Because love for Christ is not their motivator. It's forced submission. It's forced submission to the preacher in some kind of dictatorial type of leadership. Now, that's the reason why that you have people in those kinds of churches who think that they are superior Christians. If you don't live as they live, and you don't walk as they walk, you don't do as they do, then you're not up to snuff in your Christian life. And so they have become the standard. God's not the standard. They are the standard. And so you have people who've made it their job to patrol the halls over here and look for offenders. Let's see who's doing the wrong thing over there. And, and they, they come and they complain against anything and everything. They don't like anything that you're doing. And why? Because you haven't met their standard. You haven't lived up to their expectation. We need to remember who the Lord is and who we are and whose standard we should live by and who is responsible to receive the glory. And I'll guarantee you this, folks, it'll make a huge difference in your outlook. It'll make a huge difference in your attitude, in your service to the Lord. Here's what I say. Back off a little bit. Let people serve the Lord according to knowledge rather than rule and rote. And we'd be a whole lot better off. So one of the tests of the strength of the Ephesians is their faith. And Paul thanked God for their faith, their initial faith in Christ for salvation and the reception of Jesus as Lord for their obedience. Now, the second item of praise and the second test of their relationship with God is praise for their love. Now, if you look at the different aspects of Christian living and the proofs of salvation and why we are what we are and why we do what we do, you can boil it down to two tests. And the two tests are faith and love. The acid tests for true Christianity are faith and love. And I think that's such an important statement. We put it on your listening sheet tonight. The acid tests for true Christianity are faith and love. Let me start with this. Faith has to be right. It's belief and confession of Christ as the Savior and the Lord. And then the second part of this is love. And love is our faith in action. So how did Jesus say that we would know his disciples? He said in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. As you all know, the Apostle John has been called the Apostle of Love. 
I mean, he's the one who writes more about love than any of the other New Testament writers. And John is the one, of course, who recorded those words of Jesus in John chapter 13. But then John expands on the teachings of Jesus in the book of 1 John, and he spoke about true love for God and love for each other. Now, I want to speak about those two things for just a minute. Two, two things here. One, love for God. That's the first one, love for God. And what about love for God? Well, in 1 John, John says, chapter 2, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, and listen to this, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Now, we have here a dual meaning in these verses. The love that we have for God is perfected, and the love that we have for one another is perfected. And how is it perfected? Well, John says here, by the keeping of God's commandments. That's the proof of our love. Now, let's take that statement and let's tie it back to what I said before. True salvation is receiving Christ as the Lord. So if a person doesn't change, and if he never keeps God's commandments, there's no proof of his salvation. So how can the hyper-fundamentalists claim all of these conversions when there is no keeping of the commandments? Because the Bible is telling us here, where there is no obedience, there is no love. And where there is no love, there is no salvation. So it would be impossible for a person to trust Christ and not have a change take place in his life. It's always going to be evidenced by obedience to God. And a person who is not obedient cannot claim to be saved. Now, you can call that lordship salvation if you want. That makes you happy? Call it lordship salvation all that you want. But I think we would prefer to call it loveship salvation because that's what a Christian does. He keeps the commandments of the Lord and it's motivated by true love for Jesus Christ. Now, folks, there is a huge difference in motivation by forced obedience and motivation out of pure love. Those are two completely different things. Then the second thing that uh, we talk about here, I want to talk about is love for each other. Jesus said that men will know that we are the children of God because we have love for each other. Now, John also expands on this, and we have another verse where John gives us a dual meaning. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John wrote, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So how do we prove love for God? By loving each other. And why will we love each other? Because we truly love God. And the same thought is expressed in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So, so why is it that love becomes such an important part of this equation, especially love for one another? Well, it's because it's not our nature to love people. Hatred, that's the true mantra of the human heart. And that's what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He said, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, and listen, hateful and hating one another. Now think about that just for a moment. True love is found 
only in God. And folks, that is the truth of biblical teaching. If we're not saved, then we can't love. And that leaves us with the original character that we had. So without love, it says here that we're all selfish. All of us are self-serving. We live in malice and envy. And we hate one another. Now, folks, lost people do not like Christian people. Have you, have you discovered that yet? I hope that you have. You should know it. Lost people do not like Christians. And that's because there's no common ground for us. There's no interest in us because we're just too narrow-minded for the world. And so whenever you come across someone who loves Christians, who likes to be around Christians, then it can only follow that that person must be a Christian himself. You must be a saved person because only the new nature will change you to where you love the people of God. And isn't that what Jesus taught? He said in John 15, verses 18 to 19, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And of course, I couldn't say it any better than that. Because you are not of the world, the world hates you. Now, as I close this lesson tonight, I want us to look at the very specific order that Paul puts these things in. Now, many commentators, when you read, they will say that every word that Paul uses is very carefully weighed out. The order that Paul uses in his words is extremely important, and not one word that Paul chooses here is done without very careful consideration. So how does Paul, how does he maintain his doctrinal integrity so that we know that Paul is teaching everything that Jesus taught? Now, now here's a remarkable aspect of, scri- of Scripture. The Bible is a cohesive book. Never in the Bible will you find any place where it contradicts itself. You will never find the Bible controverting itself. It just will not happen. The Bible is so cohesive. And yet there are many people who say, well, Paul is opposed to something that somebody else taught, or Paul's not saying the same thing that Jesus taught. This is not even in my sermon, and, I'm, and it's getting a little bit late, and I need to finish up, but I've got to add it anyway. You know, you know uh, people will say this today, that, that Paul was someone who hated homosexuals, and we're not supposed to hate homosexuals. I mean, I would agree with that statement in some terms, but Paul preaches homosexuality, and they say, well, that's not in keeping with what Jesus said. Jesus said, we're just supposed to love everybody. It doesn't make any difference. Just love everybody. And so they put Jesus in, in contradiction to what Paul had to say. And so let's believe Jesus, not believe Paul. Well, the truth of the matter is that everything that the Apostle Paul wrote in the Scriptures is under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what he said is just as valid as every word that Jesus Christ spoke himself. All of it is spoken under the inspiration of God. And so there is no contradiction between what Paul says and what Jesus says. So how do we determine here then that what Paul says is exactly what Jesus said? Well, let's look at this. What, is, what does Jesus say about this? Paul says, faith, then love. What does Jesus say about that? Does he say faith, then love? Well, let me read to you this exchange that takes place in Matthew chapter 22. Most of you are familiar with this scripture. Jesus is speaking to a lawyer, and this lawyer is trying to trip him up. And in in verse number 35 of Matthew 22, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. 
This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now I want you to notice what the order that Jesus gives here. The order is love God and then love men. Now why is that the order? Well, because you can't love men without loving God. I mean, that's an impossible thing to do. Well, how do we come to love God? Well, the answer to how you come to the place that you love God is because of your faith. We have faith in Jesus. And our belief in Jesus as the Savior and as our Lord establishes this ability that we have to love God. And then, after we have faith in Christ and we love God then we are enabled to love our neighbor as ourselves. So you see, one of these proceeds from the other. Love proceeds from faith. Now we go back to the text that we're reading that Paul wrote. What does Paul put first? Well, in the 15th verse, it's faith in the Lord Jesus that comes first. And that's the establishment of our love for God. And then we notice that love for the saints comes second. And so that's the very same order that Jesus gives. Love God, then you can love men. Have faith in God so that you can love him, and then you will love men. Now, now why is that so important to maintain this exact order? And why does Paul choose this order so carefully? Well, he does so because faith is the determining factor before you can love others. And so that makes faith primary and love secondary. But I want to ask you, is that what we find in the Christian world today? It's not. The order has been reversed. In the Christian world today, modern Christianity, it's love and fellowship without regard to faith. And so Christians have decided theology is not important. Uh, They believe that it's our first duty to accept our fellow man, and we accept him without regard to what he believes, without regard to his faith. And I want to show you just a moment how the true principle of faith first and then love as the basis of fellowship has been reversed. That's been totally abridged in modern Christianity. Let me show you how. You ever heard of the Promise Keepers movement? Everybody heard of that? You know what I'm talking about? The essence of Promise Keepers is to break down the barrier between denominations. And so they say... We come together based upon our love and acceptance and our common ground with one another in what they call fellow believers. So you don't worry about that other person's theology. If you believe in salvation by grace and he believes in salvation through his works, that doesn't matter. What's more important is to be inclusive. What's more important is to have love and fellowship. In other words, your faith doesn't matter. And so the order has been reversed. And that's what the modern evangelistic crusades do today. What does the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association do? It breaks down the barriers established by theology and faith. You see, when Billy Graham comes to town, all the churches, doesn't matter what they believe, they join in. Even the Roman Catholics join in in the Billy Graham crusades. Now, it doesn't matter what your faith is. It doesn't matter at all. That's not the basis any longer. And so when someone makes a move in those crusades and they say, well, I'm coming to receive Christ as my Savior, as they say, accept Christ as the Savior, then what do they do? Well, they point them to the church of their choice. They point them to the Catholic Church. They point them to the Pentecostals. They even point people to the Seventh-day Adventist. And why do they do that? Because faith doesn't matter. What you believe doesn't really matter. It's love that matters. Now, what about Catholics? Well, I mentioned that a moment ago. The Roman Catholic Church believes in justification by works. 
And they go so far that in their catechism, they say that if you preach that a person is saved only by faith through grace, and that's it, then you're accursed because that's not the truth. What does Pentecostalism teach? Many of the Pentecostals do not believe in the Trinity. And so they don't believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What do Seventh-day Adventists teach? They preach salvation by works, and they preach that the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, are not the only rule of faith and practice. And I could go on and on and on, and we could talk about many, many different apostate teachings. So what have they done? They've reversed the order of faith and love. Folks, the first commandment is that we are, is not that we are to love one another. That is not the first commandment. That's not what Jesus said. The first commandment is that we love the Lord. You love, he says, the Lord thy God. And how do you love the Lord thy God? You can't love him except with true faith. And if you don't have true faith, you can't love the Lord our God. God's only worshiped in spirit and in truth. So what we have here is that the whole basis of the ecumenical movement is a reversal of faith and love. And what you end up with is neither faith nor love, because love that's not based in true faith is not love at all. So what does Paul say? He said, we're foolish, we're disobedient, we were deceived, we hated one another, and that's what we are without true faith. So let me ask you, how can we become ecumenical? Where is the biblical basis to become ecumenical? You see, the walls between us should not be torn down. I mean, the walls, what are they? They are walls of true faith. They're walls of true love. And they shouldn't be torn down. They shouldn't be done away with. They shouldn't become non-existent. What we ought to do with the walls of faith and love is to build those walls higher. And not only should we do that, we ought to put barbed wire on the top of it so we make sure that Satan can't climb over it. Don't break down the barriers. Build them higher. Because faith comes first and then our love. And if we keep it that way, we won't run into trouble. So here's your last statement on your listening sheet tonight. Insist on the proper order. Faith, then love. And folks, the reason that Christianity is in the shape that it is today and why that good churches are few and far between is because of this very thing. Faith and love have been reversed. And what we have now is blanket love for everybody And theology and faith, you know what they are to us? Really, what are theology and faith today? Theology and faith are hindrances. They're obstacles to what we really want to do. Folks, that's against the Bible. Now, this is why I believe in preaching the Bible only and why I believe that we preach what our Baptist forefathers taught because correct doctrine is essential. We're not playing games here. And I don't get up here and preach these things because it really doesn't matter after all. It does matter after all. And so we choose our words carefully, just like Paul chose his words carefully. And if we do, we'll come out right with our doctrine on the other side. Faith, then love. That's what God expects from us. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message tonight and for the opportunity to preach your word. What great truths we read in this book And Lord, if we would just keep things in the right order, in the way that you did it, in the way that Paul says to do it, the way that Jesus said to do it, and Lord, we'd be strong in our faith, and we'd have the right kind of love, and we would be able to get this message out. So we ask you, Lord, to bless in this invitation tonight. Speak to hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.